30 through 31. And because of him, you are in Christ, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Please join me in a brief moment of prayer. Our gracious God, merciful Father, Lord, we pray now that as we prepare to walk through these two verses that are just so packed with meaning, rich with spiritual truths regarding you and the work of your Son. We pray that by your Holy Spirit you would focus our attention upon your Word and upon you. And we pray that your Holy Spirit would be our primary teacher, Lord God. I pray, Lord, that you would guide my words you would enable me to be faithful to the text, that you would strike from the minds of the listeners anything that I might say that is contrary to Scripture. In the end, Father, we pray that you would enable us to know you rightly, to rightly handle the Word of God, and that through it all you would make us more like your Son. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So just last month, uh, the Pew Research Center uh, produced a uh, survey that they conducted among Americans, and uh, what they asked Americans is, in your opinion, what is the most pressing issue? What is the most critical issue that is facing Americans today? And uh, they listed the top 12, which I thought were quite interesting, and I'll share them with you. Number one, as you might expect, 70% said inflation, right? 70% of Americans, this is last month, said inflation. They are worried about the rising prices of everything, right? Gas, food, homes, you name it. Everything is going up except for most Americans' paychecks, right? So that is their greatest concern, and they think that is the biggest issue facing most Americans. 55% said the affordability of health care. Of course, that's been a top concern, I think, for several generations. Um, how can we afford to go to the doctor, to go to the hospital? What if we're in an accident? What do we do? However, third and fourth in line, I thought was really not surprising, but 54% of Americans said the greatest issue facing the United States today is violent crime. 51% said gun violence. And that, again, not surprising, but sad and shocking. 
Because I don't think that would have been the case some 20 years ago, that that would have ranked so high. But we live in a generation now. We live in a day when random acts of violence have reached um, epidemic proportions. I was reading an article recently uh, just as an example. It was an op-ed piece that was published in the the L.A. Times, the Los Angeles Times a few months ago by a liberal writer. Most times I don't agree with them, but he made one point that I did agree with. And he was talking about gun violence, and he said, quote, we need to seriously rethink the Second Amendment and whether or not it needs to be modified or repealed altogether. And then he said, and this is the part where I did agree, Well, the Founding Fathers had the best intentions. They probably never imagined a world where people would walk into crowded marketplaces or schoolrooms and shoot people for no reason. I think he's right about that. They never imagined a world where people would engage in random acts of violence for absolutely no reason. And that is the world that we are currently living in. 51% said the federal deficit is the greatest issue that is facing the United States. There's a lot of truth, I think, to be said to that. You think about the federal deficit, and I'm always amazed at the fact that only the federal government can operate their budget in the way that they do. Right? No business could operate their budget the way they do. No household could exist with the way that they operate their budget. They say, we don't have enough money to cover our loans and our expenses, so what do we do? Oh, borrow more money. That makes sense. We should work that way for everyone. 42% said climate change was the biggest issue that was facing the United States today. In fact, in January, I remember in January of 2019, An expert on climate change said that if we didn't deal with climate change, the world would come to an end in 12 years. That's kind of scary. The good news is, if we don't deal with all of these other issues, we only have nine years left. (laughs) And all the problems are solved. 39%, the quality of public schools is our biggest issue. It's no wonder homeschooling is becoming ever more popular these days. It started with the pandemic, with the coronavirus, but there is this trend of people just wanting to pull their kids out of public schools. Sadly. 38% said illegal immigration. 35% said racism was the biggest issue facing the United States today. 30% said the conditions of our roads and bridges, infrastructure. 23% said unemployment. And I was happy to see what came last. 19% said the biggest issue facing the United States today is the coronavirus. That's come way down from two years ago. Just 19% said the coronavirus is the biggest issue. But what I found... 
both interesting and concerning at the same time about the article that I read from the Pew Research Center is two things. One is that not one person who was asked said that the thing that they are most concerned about is what am I going to say to God when I die? Nobody thinks beyond this life. Nobody thinks beyond this world. Because we are not all going to be at least directly affected by the federal deficit or by illegal immigration or by the coronavirus or by gun violence. But we will all be directly affected by death. Recent studies show that 10 out of every 10 people will die. It was a short study. <laughs> Death comes to all of us unless Christ returns. The second thing that I found concerning is that they all admit that there are all of these looming problems facing the United States, and yet nobody had any real solutions. All of the solutions that were offered are all of the same solutions that have been offered for the last 50 years. They're just tweaking them slightly and saying, well, maybe, maybe if we try this just one more time, this time it'll work. Meanwhile, the United States and really the rest of the world just continues to get worse. You see, because the answer to both of these concerns is found right here in these two verses that we're going to look at this morning. Notice what Paul says in verse 30. He says, and because of him, you are in Christ Jesus. Literally, the Greek reads, and from him. And from him, that is from God, you are in Christ Jesus. What does Paul mean by that? He means that the believer being in union with Christ is a gift from God. It's something that God does. It is from him that you, as the believer who has placed faith in Christ, is in Christ. And from him, you are in Christ Jesus. The believer being in union with Christ by faith and through the power of the Holy Spirit is something that God does. In Ephesians chapter 2, for example, verses 4 to 7, we looked at this last week, but I want to look at it again. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 to 7, Paul writes this, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that, listen, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us 
How? In Christ Jesus. It is in Christ Jesus that we are seated in the heavenly places. It is in Christ Jesus that we receive all of the blessings and the rewards and the privileges that come from knowing Christ. When God saves us, according to Paul, he says to our dead souls, come to life. Come to life. And at that moment, when that happens, the Holy Spirit makes us alive in Christ. The Holy Spirit indwells our soul. The Holy Spirit envelops our soul. And understand this, the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Christ. The Holy Spirit is Jesus' Spirit. The Holy Spirit is God's Spirit. Thus, by means of our being enveloped, by means of our being enveloped within the Holy Spirit, we are enveloped in Christ. We are inside of Christ. We are in union with Christ. So in that sense, we are seated with Christ in the heavenly places. Seated with Christ in the heavenly places. And then Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.30, He says that all of this is from God. All of this is from God. This is not something that we do. This is something that God does for us. This is something that God does to us. We are simply the recipients. We are the passive recipients of God's grace. Just as Lazarus was the passive recipient of God's grace. We forget that. Because too often times it's not taught. In salvation, the believer is passive in salvation. We are active in our sanctification, but we are passive in our salvation, in our regeneration, to be more specific. Notice what Paul says next in verse 30. And because of him, that is, and from him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God. Wisdom from God. The Corinthians, being Greeks, were big on wisdom, right? Sophia is the Greek word. They took a lot of pride in their philosophers and their various philosophies and waxing eloquent with all of their philosophical arguments about the meaning of life. They thought when it came to wisdom, they had cornered the market. The Greeks were the wisest people on the planet. It's for that reason that all of the greatest philosophers come from Greece It's hard for us to relate to that, but in Greek society, the idea of wisdom, of Sophia, of seeking wisdom, of being wise, 
was kind of a cult movement within ancient Greece. Thus, Paul is attacking the very thing that they have built their entire society on, wisdom. He's attacking that. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 17, all the way to chapter 2, verse 13, Paul uses the word wisdom 15 times. 15 times he addresses wisdom. In chapter 1 alone, he addresses wisdom eight times. The Greeks, the church in Corinth, thought that they were so wise. They thought they had figured it all out. This is not much different from today. Romans chapter 1, something that was written 2,000 years ago. Paul says, although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. That verse speaks more about this generation than any past generation in history. We have figured out so much. We can put a person on the moon. We can split the nucleus of an atom. But we can't figure out how to stop people from killing each other. But Paul says that by means of our union with Christ, Christ has become our wisdom. He's become our wisdom. Christ is our wisdom who became to us wisdom from God. What does he mean by that? I think what he means is Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, Paul said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. In the heavenly places. He has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. Not most, not many, but he has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. That is, every good thing which Christ possesses, everything which Christ possesses becomes ours. Everything that is in Christ, everything good that is found in Christ, that comes from Christ, becomes ours by means of our union with Christ. Because we are united to Christ. Because Christ indwells us. Because Christ envelops us. Christ is the wisdom of God personified. What is wisdom? Job, in chapter 28, verse 28, says the fear of the Lord that is wisdom. And to turn away from evil is understanding. To fear God, not be afraid of God, but to live your life in reverence of God, honoring God, desiring to please God, desiring to glorify God, to live your life that way is wisdom. That's what it means to be wise. And the more that you do that, the wiser you will be. My friends, there is no one on the face of the planet who has ever lived 
that was more wiser than Christ. Because there is no one who lived their life in fear of God the Father more than Christ the Son. He said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. Jesus did everything and only that which God the Father desired for him to do. If the fear of the Lord is wisdom, then Christ is the wisdom of God personified. Christ is the wisdom of God incarnate in human flesh. And because of our union with Christ, that wisdom becomes ours. That's what Paul means in Philippians chapter 2 when he says, have the mind of Christ. That's what Paul meant in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, when he says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Think the way Christ thought, and you will be wise beyond your years. You will be wise beyond your peers. You will be wise beyond this world. Christ becomes to us the wisdom of God. So long as we strive and pray to have the mind of Christ, to be like Christ, we display the wisdom of God to the world. A wisdom that the world just struggles to understand. And I'll give you an example of what I mean by that. We talk about the wisdom of God that comes from Christ. Some of you may be thinking, I don't really have that because I struggle all the time. I make dumb decisions all the time. Believe it or not, if you have Christ in your life, if you're a believer, regardless of the mistakes that you make, you are far wiser than the world around you. And you make far fewer mistakes than you would make without Christ. The example that comes to mind, at least for me, is, you know, I worked in the secular world for many years, had different jobs. And inevitably, as people got to know me, and as they got to know my wife, and she would come to visit from time to time, bring me lunch or whatnot, I would have a, a coworker who would come to me and say, you know, you and your wife seem to have such a great marriage. I mean, you guys seem to get along so well. You always talk well of your wife. And, you know, I've, I've been married for like eight years, and we're just struggling. What's the secret to your marriage? And I would say, simple. Christ needs to be the center of your marriage. That's it? That's all you got to say? That's it? Well, that doesn't make any sense. That's the dumbest thing I've ever... It can't be that simple. Right? I, my marriage, we got all kinds of complicated problems. I mean, my wife, she was divorced. I was divorced. We brought all kinds of baggage in. We got all of these kids that are half related to me. I don't know who half of them are half the time. It's a complicated mess. And you're saying, you just need Christ. That's mind-blowing to the world. That doesn't make any sense. Christ is the wisdom of God for us. Thus, the solution to the world's problem and the church's problem. See, churches have lots of problems because you know why? Christ isn't the center of their church. The solution to the world's problem, the solution to the church's problem, the solution to family problems, the solution to marital problems is Christ. 
Make Christ the center of your life, the center of your marriage, the center of your church. All these problems disappear. But Christ not only becomes our wisdom, but he becomes our righteousness. Right? He says that in verse 30 as well. And from him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness. What is the meaning of righteousness? Well, quite simply, let me just say that as a noun and as an adjective, it means to be in right standing before the law. That's what it means. A righteous person in the Bible is a person who is in right standing before the law. If you're talking about the law of God, it means a person who has never violated the law of God, not once. If you're talking about a courtroom, someone who's been accused of violating a particular law, that person would be declared righteous if they are found not guilty. You've done the trial. You haven't committed the crime. You are righteous in regards to this law. Maybe not all of them, but to this one, you are righteous. God demands sinless perfection. He does. God demands absolute righteousness in order to be in relationship with him. And understand, being righteous doesn't simply mean being sinless. Okay, we need to get that clear. Being sinless is having our sins atoned for. Jesus died on the cross to atone for our sins, and so we are sinless. Being righteous means having always kept the law perfectly what it means to be righteous. It is what God demands. In Ezekiel 18, chapter, or chapter 18, verse 4, God says the soul who sins shall surely die. Not the soul that commins, commits many sins or more than three, the soul that sins. You commit one sin, eternal death. The soul that sins, God says, must die. That is God's standard. And Jesus upholds that standard. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 48, Jesus said, Therefore be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That is God's standard. God will only allow into heaven those who are perfect just as God is perfect. That is not only those who are sinless, but those who are completely righteous in regards to the law of God. How is that possible? Feast your eyes upon Philippians chapter 3, verses 8 and 9. This is a wonderful verse. This is the kind of verse you ought to underline, put some stars around it, memorize it. Philippians chapter 3, verses 8 to 9. Paul writes this, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. In other words, I'm not going to depend on my works. I'm not going to trust in my works. I'm going to count all of my good works as a waste of time, as lost, as ineffective. 
in order that I may gain Christ. And, verse 9, listen to the same language, and be found in him, in union with Christ. And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. Listen to this, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Christ is the only person who has ever truly been righteous. He has kept the law perfectly. He never violated it. He was sinless and he was perfectly righteous. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, when we are regenerated, when God saves us and the Holy Spirit brings us into union with Christ, we are indwelled with Christ's righteousness and we are surrounded and enveloped with Christ's righteousness. Christ becomes the righteousness for us that God demands so that we can enter into his glorious presence. John Piper likes to say that Christ's righteousness is like the fireproof suit that we are cloaked in that enables us to enter into the blazing center of God's glory and not be consumed. Christ becomes our righteousness. Because of our union with Christ, we're told in 1 Corinthians 1.30 that Christ becomes our sanctification. How is that? He becomes our sanctification. The underlying Greek word for sanctification is the word holiness. It's the same word. It's the same word you see in Hebrews 12.14. Pursue holiness without which no one will see the Lord. The exact same Greek words, the exact same spelling as well. Thus, Christ becomes our holiness. He becomes our sanctification. What does it mean to be holy? To be holy doesn't just mean to be morally pure. I've heard that so many times. My spine cringes every time I hear it. To be holy means to be morally pure. I mean, that's part of it for sure, but that's not all of it. And to be holy doesn't simply mean to be separated from the world. Is not all of what it means to be holy. A good example and understanding of what it means is when we think about Moses before the burning bush. God says to him, take your shoes off, Moses, for the ground upon which you are standing is holy ground. Well, that ground was not morally pure. Ground is morally neutral. It's just dirt. It's neither good or bad. It's not sinful or wicked. It's just dirt. And it's not so much that the ground has been separated because it's still connected to the rest of the ground beyond it. What God is telling Moses is the place where you are standing, the place where we are meeting, has been devoted to me, has been devoted to my purposes, has been devoted to my holiness. This is holy ground. It's different from the rest of the ground because we're not meeting over there. I'm not standing over there. I'm standing here in front of you. This is holy ground. Christ was and is wholly devoted to God the Father and to his 
glory. To be holy means to be utterly devoted to God. That's what it means to be holy, which does separate you from the world, which does mean you have to be morally pure to an extent. But more specifically, to be holy means to be wholly devoted to God and to his glory. So when the angels sing in heaven in Isaiah chapter 6, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. You know what they're saying? They're saying God is utterly devoted three times to his glory. God is wholly devoted to his own glory. Thus, because of our union with Christ, because of our union in Christ, because Christ is in us and we are in Christ, believers, by means of our union with Christ, believers are wholly devoted to God. Because our sins have been atoned for. We are completely righteous. We are as wholly devoted to God as Christ is wholly devoted to God because we are in Christ. My friends, I hope you're able to wrap your minds around this. The only reason God the Father is able and willing to reach out and accept you and embrace you is because you are inside of Christ. He embraces his own son. And all believers are the body of Christ. Because of our union with Christ, Christ is our redemption. Christ is our redemption from 1 Corinthians 1.30. The Greek word for redemption is uh, apolytrusos. And it literally means to purchase back that which is rightfully yours. So it doesn't mean just to buy something for the first time. There's a different Greek word for that. This word means to purchase back that which is yours or that which you have a right to. A good example of this, and I don't see these anymore. I think these days are gone. But when I was a kid, uh, soda, soda bottles were really popular. I mean, you know, cans were kind of new. Soda bottles were the big thing. And uh, on every soda bottle, there was a little label that was uh, written on there that said redemption value, you know, five cents. Some of you are old enough to know what I'm talking about. Because when I was a kid, man, us neighborhood kids, we would just go through the whole neighborhood, fishing through trash cans. We'd find all kinds of soda bottles. We'd come dragging them back to the store. They'd give us five cents for every one of them. It's great. Then we'd go to the, the, uh, the video game store. Yes, they had video games when I was a kid like two. But the idea was that these soda companies wanted to buy back their bottles because they would reuse them, would save them money. So they were willing to pay a certain amount to buy back their bottle, which they produced. Christ is the price that was paid to secure our freedom. Christ purchased the church for himself with his own blood. And he purchased back. That's why the Bible uses that kind of language, redemption. 
because the church rightfully belongs to Christ. Jesus said in John chapter 6, all that the Father has given me will come to me. Christ came to redeem those whom the Father had already given to him from eternity past. They rightfully belong to him. But they are in bondage, in slavery to sin. And the price to set us free from our slavery is the blood of Christ, his being willing to step out of the glories of heaven, to become a man, and to be flogged and beaten and crucified. That was the price. That was the redemption value. It was paid for his bride. I shared this illustration with uh, the kids yesterday. I'll share it here again so some of the kids will get to hear this twice. You know, in, the, uh, in biblical times, oftentimes, uh, brides, there had to be a bride price that was paid by the person that wanted to marry a daughter in ancient times. And the purpose of the bride price, it's not so much that the parents were selling the daughter. That's not what it was at all. But the idea in ancient times is that the parents would say to themselves, you want to marry my daughter, and she is extremely valuable to me. She is among the most valuable things I have as a father, other than my other daughters, my other children. And I wouldn't just give you a cow for free if you asked. I'm not going to just give you my daughter. You're going to have to pay something for her because she's valuable. You're not going to get her just for free. And so in those days, the groom would say, I understand that. She's valuable to me. I love her. Name your price, whatever it is, and I'll figure out a way to pay the bride price because I so much want to marry your daughter. <clears throat> Makes you think we ought to bring back that bride price idea, huh? But what this means is that in eternity past, at some point, God the Father says to the Son, I want to give you a bride. And the Son says, I want to have a bride. And the Father says, but this bride has a bride price. She's going to cost you. She's not free. And the Son says, what is that price? And the Father says, you'll have to pay with your own life. You'll have to become human. You'll have to live in obedience to the law perfectly. You'll have to be flogged and beaten, and scourged, and crucified. To which the son replies, that's a fair price. I'll pay that price. That's how valuable we are to Christ. Christ is our redemption. Why? Verse 31 so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Here, Paul is quoting from Jeremiah 9, 23 to 24. It's not an exact quote, but clearly this is the text that Paul has in mind. The context of Jeremiah 9 is that Jeremiah chapter 9 is a part of a series of oracles where God is warning 
God is warning the people of southern Israel that there is a day of judgment coming. The northern kingdom has already fallen to the Assyrians. The southern kingdom is about to fall to the Babylonians. And God is warning the southern kingdom through the prophet Jeremiah, there is a day of judgment that is coming, and he is warning them not to boast in their wisdom, not to depend on on their wisdom to deliver them, but rather that they ought to boast in knowing God, that they are in a covenantal relationship with God. But sadly, they will continue to boast in their own wisdom and ability to figure things out, and it only gets worse. This is the point that Paul is making to the church in Corinth. That if they are going to boast about anything, if they are going to depend on anything to solve their problems, it cannot be to boast in their own wisdom. To depend on their own wisdom to solve the problems within their church. It simply will not work. Rather, Paul says, if they boast, They ought to boast in the sovereign, merciful grace of God. They should boast not in what they think they have done for themselves or in what they think they have done for God. Because that's another problem we have, don't we? God, look at what I've done for you. Look at all the work that I do for you, God. We should boast not in what we think we have done for ourselves or in what we think we have done for God, but we should boast in what God has done for us. Because in and of ourselves, in and of ourselves, we have absolutely nothing to boast in. All of our boast can and only should be in Christ. Let's pray. Our gracious God, Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your amazing grace. We thank you for sending your Son, Jesus Christ, into the world and by your Holy Spirit, opening our eyes to the glory of Christ and bringing us into union with Christ so that he would be for us wisdom, righteousness, sanctification. We thank you, we praise you, Lord God, for your amazing grace and goodness. And Father, we pray that as we approach the Lord's Supper, that you would speak to us, Lord God, about all that Christ has done for us. We pray that this message, Lord God, from your word would resonate in our lives and would cause us to live lives that are even more wholly devoted to you and to your glory in light of all that Christ has done for us. Lord, we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.